You may have heard some people say that sitting is the new smoking. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not sitting. Maybe it's the way you're sitting. We're going to find out more about this whole topic uh, on this episode of the Movement Movement Podcast, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, starting feet first, because you know those things are your foundation. We break down the propaganda, the mythology, and often the outright lies you've been told about what it takes to walk or run or play or hike or do yoga or CrossFit, whatever it is you like to do, and to do that enjoyably, efficiently, effectively. And did I mention enjoyably? Don't answer. It's a tr- question I know I did. Because look, if you're not having fun, do something different till you are. Because if it's not enjoyable, you're not going to keep doing it anyway. So why start with something unpleasant? Have fun first. Uh, I call this the Movement Movement Podcast. And by the way, the I part of that, I'm Stephen Sashin, co-founder and CEO of Zero Shoes. And it's the movement movement because we're creating a movement that involves you. Doesn't take any effort or cost. I'll tell you about that in a second. We're creating a movement about natural movement, helping people rediscover that using your body the way it was designed is the better, obvious, healthy choice. Just the way we currently think of natural food. That movement part, really easy. Just share with your friends. And if you want to know how, go check out our website, www.jointhemovementmovement.com. You'll find previous episodes, all the places you can interact with us on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram, et cetera, all the places you can download podcasts. In short, if you want to be part of the tribe, please subscribe. So let us jump in. Um, Turner, uh, as I said before we started this, I'm not going to do the intro for you. I want to let people find out from you. Tell people who you are and what the hell you're doing here. Okay. Well, um, yeah. So I kind of have the usual uh, backstory of your normal, mild-mannered trauma surgeon. You know, I went to Princeton undergrad, you know, neurobiology and then medical school and then residency and then a fellowship and another fellowship and another fellowship, but trauma, critical care, burns, that kind of thing. Then I spent 25 Wait, years. Let me just pause. Thinking- just from that part alone, if I hear one more story just like that, I tell you. <laughs> you know, it's all good fun. You get to meet a lot of people and, and you get to do some good. And you, uh, so it was all good fun. And then I kind of lurched off script um, when we had a kid and I wanted a little more time at home. So I got a master's in biostat, got a grant from the NIH, and I started doing trauma epidemiology. They, they were looking at what trauma centers were doing well and what trauma centers were kind of not doing as well to figure out what the difference was and how we could do better taking care of you know, patients who were the sickest of sick. And um, so it, it became mostly a matter of writing computer code to do statistical modeling. All of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I'd given up the peripatetic life of a, of a trauma surgeon, you know, in the clinic, the OR, the ICU, back to the OR, you know, off to clinic, down to the ER kind of thing. And I was just sitting and all of a sudden my back started hurting and I thought, you know, that's new. So <laughs> I started like, I thought, well, I've been to medical school. I've, I've taken bodies apart in the, the dissection lab. I put them back together in the OR. I, I can figure this out. It's not so easy. And uh, it took a deep dive in a while before it kind of came clear that really the problem was sitting um, and not even just sitting, but sitting on you know crappy chairs that you know, leave people kind of hunched and inert for hours a day and basically bought every, every kind of chair that was supposed to help. And none of them succeeded, really. And, you know, so as a surgeon, you get used to just trying to take control of situations where you don't know what you're doing because... <laughs> That's kind of what surgery, trauma surgery, for sure. I mean, you walk away from the sink with you know water dripping off of your elbows and some guys on the table with a bunch of gunshot wounds. You walk in the room and you say, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm sure I can handle it. Yeah. It's hubris. That's crazy. But if you can't say that sentence, 
you can't walk into an operating room. You got no business being there. You have to have, you know, crazy confidence. So I don't know anything about entrepreneurship or chairs or design or any of that stuff, but there's a great maker community in Burlington, Vermont. And I fell in with some guys who studied design in New York City. And, and you know, before long, we had a solution and we had prototypes and we started making these things and firing them out over the web. He would write to us and say, this is terrific, but, and so we had long email conversations and, you know, finally we evolved designs for chairs that are unique because they let people move while they're sitting. And that's really the solution to the problem. So I love that you said that. Have you read um, Daniel Lieberman? He's from Harvard, his book, um, Exercised. So you know that he- Well, he's, he's written more books than Exercise, I guess. His, his, most, re- his most recent book. And uh, Daniel and I had a very entertaining time, actually. When I first met him, he had just started proposing his idea that we're all persistence endurance athletes, that we evolve from people who slowly hunted their prey by you know very kind of slowly jogging, walking, et cetera. And I said to him, um, yeah, that's not true. And he's like, like what? Because he was not used to people come confronting him and criticizing his Harvard credentials. I said, well, that may be true for some of you, but it's not true for me and my people. And he says, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm a sprinter. It's a whole different world. And he says, oh, no, no, you just guys didn't train the right way. I went, that's what all you slow guys say. No, no, whole different game. I said, here's what happens. <laughs> Your friends you know, slowly walked down the antelope. My friends showed up, picked it up, carried it over shoulders and you know, carted it home. Because my friends, we all deadlift three times our body weight and you guys can barely do a push-up. And um, it took a couple of years till he, I think he got over that and we become friendly. But the reason that I bring it up is, you know, this whole idea of sitting is the new smoking, as you know, took, got a lot of press in the last few years. They just sitting is the problem. And he show, talks about in that book, looking at indigenous cultures where they do a lot of sitting, they do a lot of lying around. They don't go. They, they do. They, they, they have a lot of time downtime. If you put accelerometers on them, yes. but if you go watch them, they're not like, they're not sitting in an office chair. They're That's the thing. Yes. And so, so when I heard about what you were doing, I will confess, um, I knew nothing about it. And I was uh, curious slash dubious slash curious slash doubtful slash, you know, who knows what. And then the moment I got your chair, and of course, you know, using the word chair for what you sent me is at best a bit of a stretch. I'm going to hold it up for people who can, can see. And for people who can't see, why don't you describe what I just held up? And then I'm going to tell you my experience with it. Okay. No. So um, we wanted to make a chair that would let people move in all directions without prepositioning. And so because they're completely unstable, they have to be uh, utterly balanced in order not to just fall off. I tell people, no one has ever fallen asleep on our chair. You can't. You know, if you you will find yourself on the floor, and most people wake up before they they get that far. So by making by making a chair unstable, you cause people to engage with their posture continuously. Yeah. Now, the, the shocking thing is, and maybe you had this experience, your brain doesn't have to get involved. Your brain can can watch what's going on. But it doesn't have to participate because it's a matter of spinal reflexes. Did you know it takes children like six months or nine months or a year to learn how to walk? I mean, what is wrong with those little beggars? Why are they lazy or are they stupid? You know? And and the answer is walking is very hard. 
you know, especially if you're starting from uh, ground zero. So that's why they go through the creeping, crawling, toddling kind of thing. What they're doing is they're developing spinal reflexes that let them exist in gravity effortlessly. So everybody already has the spinal reflexes to sit in a balanced way on an unbalanced chair. I like that. But they don't use those reflexes because they're being supported by a backrest and a footrest and an armrest and coup de gras, lumbar support, you know, that's trying to recapitulate something that looks like normal posture, but profoundly is not. You know, the way your spine looks is determined by gravity. And it's an interesting thought experiment. If, If you raise the child free of gravity, what would their spine look like? Has there been any information about um, people who spend a lot of time in space and what's changed posturally? Well, we we know that uh, you know they have a hard time when they get back to Earth because, yeah. among other things, they have osteoporosis because exactly. they lost a lot of bone know, mass. The business of your your spine is constantly relying on gravity to clue it into what's going on, and if you take people out of gravity things go wrong rather quickly. You know, it's astonishing how quickly the problems develop. But just to say, you know, so you can be sitting on a chair and your spine is having a silent conversation with gravity, spinal reflexes are keeping everything in order, and your brain can like be reading your email or writing poetry or I don't know what. But in the meantime, your posture is perfect. I have a friend who is a serious meditation type. He lives at the Zen Center. And uh, the first time I, he ever sat on one of our chairs, his eyes got wide and he said, this is amazing. I go exactly where I go when I meditate. Interesting. And I sit on your chair. And I, we talked about it for a while. And it turns out, of course, there are mirror neurons in the human brain and this and that. And because the chair kind of induces a posture that approximates the, the noble posture of meditation, his body is in the meditation posture and his brain thinks, oh, I recognize this posture. Right. I must be meditating. It's a bit Pavlovian. You know, those Zen boys, posture is their thing. I was in, uh, when I was living in New York, the Dalai Lama came into town and there was this big sort of sunrise meditation thing. And you could spot the different meditation traditions by how people were sitting. So the Theravada meditators, the um, people who are most familiar with that would be like mindfulness or Vipassana. um, You know, they tried to remain still, but they didn't have great posture necessarily. The Zen boys... Great posture. You know, they were statuesque, literally. Then the Tibetans, the Dalai Lama included, were my favorite because, you know, they were just kind of sitting comfortably. And then every now and then they just have a conversation with a guy sitting next to them. So they could not have been more non-rigid about everything from the sitting posture to what they were doing, which was very entertaining. Watching the Zen boys kind of freak out when the Dalai Lama is like opening his eyes and, you know, waving to people. So let me back up a little bit. And for people who didn't see what I'm doing, and uh, I can do this while Turner goes to turn off the phone. So the thing that I'm sitting on, the best way I can describe it, and wait, I'm going to, I'm looking at it to do this. Imagine taking like a small, well, let's take a, you know, normal size oval dinner plate, which dinner plates are typically not oval, but work with me on that. I know you're showing it, but I'm trying to describe it for people who can't see. So take a small dinner plate, put a tiny little duck bill on the back that goes, you know, a couple inches, you know, kind of behind you a little bit, but you don't even need that really. And then put that on a ball on something that kind of rotates, that's unstable. And so that's what you're sitting on. It's padded, of course, um, not massively, but you're sitting on this thing that you can't find a, well, you can find a spot where you kind of lock in, but during the course of the day, because I've been sitting on this thing for a couple of days now, 
what I love is that not only do you find yourself having to move and adjust dynamically, but you want to, or I want to, I really enjoy, I find myself kind of swiveling and doing a little kind of dancey moves and things. And it's very, very pleasant. And you can tell that for some people um, who do not have the same core strength that one develops, you know, training to be a master's all-American sprinter. I imagine this really, some people, you know, they get a real workout workout other than just feeling the, how do I want to put it? It just feels, this is going to sound crazy. It feels strangely right to not be stable. Um, I enjoy, look, nothing wrong with planting myself on a couch or in a chair and just kind of kicking back and doing nothing. But I was on this thing for nine hours yesterday. So far, it's been six hours today. <laughs> and, um, I know that, I know it says right here, start with 30 minutes, but I ignored that. Like, you know, people ignore when we say, just do a 20 minute run on our shoes to start. But because I just didn't want to get off and felt totally fine at the end of the day and this morning as well. Actually, I have a little scoliosis from having a other problem with my spine. And I can definitely feel my spinal erectors today. They definitely got a bit of a workout yesterday, but it's been super, super fascinating. So anyway, that's the description, uh, both of the physical thing, and you can add to that if you like, but also just my personal direct experience. Well, we get that a lot, actually, you know, people just love it and, you know, kind of can't get off it because it, it's it's sort of fun, you know? Yeah. And so exactly what is it doing? Well, it, it's doing a couple things. One of the things it does is it puts people in a balanced posture pretty much automatically. So their posture gets better and pretty much their back stops hurting within days or weeks. It's it's astonishing number of people who send us emails and videos about how great it has been for their back. But more than that, it turns out that you don't actually need your legs to walk. There's a there's a great piece of video um, that you can find it on YouTube without looking about a guy who's you know congenitally born without femurs. So, but he's walking perfectly well, you know, with great posture and and uh, good balance. But he's walking on his ischial tuberosities. He's just like uh, marching along on his on the, the his sits bones. Yeah, because. That's what walking is. Walking is accomplished with your spine and your hips. Your legs are just the extensure extensions that let you take longer drives. But all of the power of walking comes from the spinal engine, the, the, the interaction of the, the, the spine and the hips. So when you're sitting on our chair, you can actually be walking without the bother of trying to figure out where you're going to go. And because <laughs> you're walking, because you're walking, your metabolic rate goes up to about 1.3, 1.4, maybe even 1.5 mets, depending on how intensively you play. Well, that's that's right up there at a point where you're making a difference and your H, your bad cholesterol is going down, your good cholesterol is going up, your insulin is going down. There are metabolic consequences to sitting with your muscles gone dark all day long, slumped in a conventional ergonomic chair, because your muscles aren't just activators that move your bones around. They're very complex biochemical factories that are spinning off you know, molecules that communicate with the rest of your body. And your metabolism got used to five or 10 or even 15 miles a day when we were you know, hunter-gatherers on the, you know, on the savannah. And when you take that away and you go to a mile or half a mile or a quarter mile, people working from home, maybe not even. You know, this is catastrophic for your biochemistry, which requires exercise uniquely among primates. Gorillas, orangutans, chimps, bon all these other cousins of ours are fine, just like sitting around cracking nuts in, in a zoo. They maintain a lean body. They, they have a 10%, even less body fat ratio 
doing nothing. A, a chimp, you know, will just like crack some nuts and eat them and then amble over and climb a tree and sleep for the night. And that's, that's it. Then he knocks off. You know, they, they don't, they don't require the kind of intensity that human biochemistry requires to thrive. Well, it's interesting. I thought about this yesterday, actually, and this morning, is that the whole idea of non-exercise, um, what does NEAT stand for? I can never remember. Non-exercise something, thermogenesis, what's the A? Um, <laughs> it's a um, non- non-exercise. Active thermogenesis. There we go. Active. Oh, that was the easy word. And so just the whole idea, basically, that for people who don't know, just we expend a bunch of calories by doing little things, fidgeting, little ways we move around. And so I was thinking about this quite a bit yesterday, is that I just was doing more moving during the time that I was sitting than I have at any other time with all the time that I spent sitting. I have a, a treadmill desk, I have a which is obviously a standing desk as well. I remember when I first started using that, I dropped like five pounds effortlessly. Um, and there's some activities that in some work that I can do while standing or while um, while walking, and there's some that I really can't. But it really felt like I was getting that same kind of benefit, a very similar benefit from just sitting on this because of how much moving. I was doing. And again, you know, you make a little move and it changes your balance. And this is going to sound so weird to me, not to you, I'm sure, is it just feels like it's once you realize you're doing that, it just feels fun to move a little bit more before you try to come back to some balanced posture. It just was more enjoyable to move. Oh, and you're exploring the space of all possible spinal configurations, which is an immense space because you have 24 vertebrae, six joints between every two vertebrae. You know, the, there's the there's the intervertebral disc. There's a lot of different ways your spine can be, most of which are terrible. By sitting on something unstable, you can really explore the space of all that your spine could assume. When it finds one it likes, it goes there. And then it explores some more. And if it finds one it likes better, it goes there until mm. it optimizes your mm. posture. It's, it's a very, we, we, uh, we take these things out and put them on a walking street here in Burlington and just, you know, let people try them out to see what'll happen. And we were doing this one day and some like 13 or 14 year old young woman was like sitting at the periphery just on one of our chairs, just kind of blissing out in the sun without even a phone. She's just like sitting there five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. And then she gets up and she walks away. But she, she just gets about 10 steps and she turns around and she says, you know, I think it's making me walk better <laughs> because, you know, it was like hitting a reset button for the way she inhabits her spine and her posture. You know, I'm not going to, I'm going to be very careful about what I say here because okay. I don't want to draw a causal relationship where it may not be because there's a lot of other things that I've been doing in the last few days that could affect this. But I noticed this morning that the way my shoulders were being held was different. I mean, not unusual. It's not unfamiliar, let's say, but it was habitually different. Like the resting position was a little different than it normally is. It's normally, that's a position I have to consciously normally think about. And this morning I was noticing, hey, I'm not thinking about that one. And they're in the spot that I like them to be. How amazing is that? That's uh, high on the list of things that don't suck. Let's call it that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, the idea that you know, the idea that you can harangue or or shame or browbeat people into better postures, it's a failed game, right? Yeah. You can't consciously control your posture. But if you put people on an unstable surface, their posture is automatically generated by their spinal reflexes and their spine having a conversation with gravity. So they don't have to do anything because they already know how based on having learned 
to exist in gravity as a child. Well, I want to address two things from what you said. The first is um, unstable surfaces, because there are a lot of people who've gotten the idea that unstable is good for everything. So for example, in footwear, there are companies that make footwear that they explicitly say is designed to be unstable. And they say that that's somehow going to be good for you. In that case, totally not. There are some people who are doing workouts on unstable surfaces, thinking that you're somehow building up um, the, the, what do they call them? You know, the stabilizing muscles, which there are no magic stabilizing muscles. They're just the muscles that you use for different things. Um, and it's not about you're doing, you're not making the muscle stronger. You're changing your neurology to use your muscles a little differently. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to get stronger, you want to be on something stable to use your muscles in their strongest position. So there's a lot of misconception about this whole unstable, stable thing. But with sitting, it's a very different game because you're not trying to build strength. You're not trying to deliberately put yourself in a compromised position. You're giving yourself the opportunity of finding a natural position because like with shoes that are unstable, as you're going through your gait cycle, you're putting yourself in dangerous positions. With sitting, it's not a fundamentally dangerous position. So these little stabilizing motions, it's a whole different world than unstable training, which has gotten a lot of press and the research has been very clear, not really helpful. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a very interesting phenomenon um, that instability should become like something that's lauded just in and of itself. Sometimes it's appropriate, but mostly it's not. I mean, you, you know, I don't know what the injury rates look like for unstable shoes, but I have a feeling it's not favorable. Well, let's, let's say there aren't statistics on this that I've read, but I've been getting a lot of anecdotal information from people in the footwear industry that with the new mm -hmm. maximalist shoes that are super, super high, where the foam is not particularly stable, um, wears out very quickly, that the incidence of emergency room visits for broken wrists and collarbones is has gone up. No, and, and we know that when women started wearing those very high platform shoes, yeah. the incidence of ankle fractures and stuff went way up, even in young people where you wouldn't expect that. Well, as a former All-American gymnast, um, I had a bet that I could do a standing backflip anywhere, anytime. And one of the girls at this gymnastics camp I was at said, well, just do it on beam. And so I did a standing back on beam, but my foot landed oh. slightly off it. So my foot twisted and I heard that come out of my foot. And I went, ah, damn it, I just broke my foot. And everyone laughed. Went, I'm not kidding. And when I got to the emergency room, the doctor says, um, yeah, we normally only see this break. It was a fifth metatarsal break. We normally only see this from women who fall off their platform shoes. I went, uh, <laughs> can you talk to me about uh, what football players get instead? Can you give me something? <laughs> um, so actually, but so back to something else you said, I want you to, to dive into this a little further. Um, you talked about the ineffectiveness of lumbar support for in chairs and, and whether you're in a chair or if you're in a car, I mean, lumbar support products are huge, huge sellers. Can you dive into that a bit more? Sure. Um, so the lumbar lordosis, the normal arch in your low back, just belongs there because that's how the spine is designed. When you put people in a chair with a backrest and footrest and an armrest and all that kind of stuff, the small of their back goes flat just because they've been constrained in so many ways. And the, the chair designers took a look at that and said, hmm, that doesn't look right. And so they put a lump right behind the small of the back, trying to recapitulate, trying to recreate the lumbar lordosis, which ordinarily is emergent of kind of the, the, the brilliant 
synthesis of the way your spine works and the way and way gravity affects your spine. And they're trying to simulate it by just mashing something into the small of your back. Anybody who's ever sat against lumbar support pretty much knows that it's you're not going to stay there for very long. It's mm -hmm. just a failed concept. I had a very interesting conversation with a guy who at a ergonomics conference. I've been to a lot of conferences that I wouldn't ordinarily go to, but so this is one I went to, Ergo Expo in Las Vegas, where I met a, a guy who, um, you know, I was like showing our chairs and you know, people couldn't make much sense out of it because it was unlike anything else at their ergonomic conference. Although a couple of people said, this is the only new thing we've seen in a decade. But anyway, this guy walks by and he's got stubble and he's swarthy and he's got an ascot and he's got groupies and and um, he sits down on our chair and, you know, he has this look, you know, he's a little puzzled. And then he gets up and a woman sits down and she, she sits on it for, for about a minute. And she says, oh, Francisco, this is terrific. And it turns out this is a guy who was part of the design team for the, for the Herman Miller Aeron chair in 1994. Oh, how funny. And um, so we had a very interesting conversation because he knew a lot about chairs, which I didn't. I'm like a, you know, emeritus professor in the Department of Surgery from you know, the University of Vermont, and he spent his whole life designing office furniture. So he knows a lot. But, you know, I know a lot about anthropology and anatomy and this and that. And so it was a spirit conversation. And I go back to Burlington and we'd swap email addresses. I get an email from him two days later and he says, I feel terrible. I spent my whole life trying to make chairs so comfortable no one would want to get up. And now I find that sitting slumped all day is terrible for their posture, their back pain, and their overall health. But what do you want me to do? We've spent our lives convincing people they can't sit without lumbar support. And now I cannot sell a chair unless it has lumbar support. This is the exact conversation that I haven't had directly, but a friend of mine has had directly with the CEOs of two multi-billion dollar footwear companies and the senior vice president of a third, where they said, we know this natural movement, this whole minimalist thing is legit. We can't do it because it would be admitting everything we've said for 50 years is a lie. No, no. And you know, to roll that back, I mean, it's just so hard for them. And not to put too fine a point on it, but uh, I gave a TED talk some time ago. So I, you know, I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for TED. And I was really charmed when Ted reached out to me and said, we'd like to give away some of your chairs at the TED event. And it's going to be in Southern California. And it's like the big deal. It's two days. The tuition is 24 grand. People who are philanthropists are people who show up for this kind of thing. And they have names like Bill and Hillary, that, that kind of people. So, so, no, this is terrific. You know, we'll get some of our chairs under some of these people. And how great is that? Sure. No, yeah, no, well, fine. We'll, we'll contribute some chairs to TED. That'd be terrific. And they said, we just got to check one thing. Two days later, I get a call saying, uh, we can't do that. It turns out we have a prior arrangement with Steelcase and Steelcase said no. Hysterical. We've had similar things. We had um, over a million dollar order in the system from a major retailer. And at the literally the last minute, like within hours of them clicking submit, they got a, coincidentally, actually, they got a phone call from someone who makes big, thick, padded motion control stuff saying, uh, and they sell a lot of them through this retail chain uh, saying, yeah, we don't want that product in your stores. That was three and a half years ago. And, you know, it, it set us back quite a bit. Happily, it's all worked out fine since, but um, yeah, we have similar things. It's really, 
you know, what amazes me, actually, you and I have some things in common. So we were both gymnasts when we were younger. Were you always an individual sport athlete? I'm testing out a theory here. Yeah, no, it was gymnastics. And then it was um, martial arts, wrestling, that kind of thing, yes. swimming. I, I have a theory, and it may be completely not true, that most individual sport athletes have a particular mindset. And the mindset is best thing wins. Best man wins, best thing wins. And of course, what we have learned in business is that ain't true. And that when people are well-established in something, they don't just go, oh my gosh, that's better. What can I now do to move in that direction or to help or to bail out of what I'm doing because it's hurting people? They dig their heels in even more firmly, if that's how one digs one's heels. And they will do all manner of crazy things to keep themselves alive, I mean, and of course, when I say it that way, it makes sense what I'm describing, rather than do the better thing. And I, as an individual sport athlete who likes best thing wins, I find that, I mean, I understand it, but I also find it completely impossible to understand because it just seems so... Well, no, it's just an organism trying to prolong its life. Right. And the older and more decrepit an organism becomes, the more viciously it will you know, strive to carry on. Um, so I kind of think we're at an inflection point, you know, where big chair is getting into trouble. Their stock isn't doing that well and so on. So um, it's an interesting time to be alive. Did you just say big chair? I did say big chair. I don't know if you know, I refer to shoe companies as big shoe. No, and and it, and I'm I'm just riffing on big tobacco. Yeah, um, exactly. And, 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 the, and the analogy is quite strict. You know, when back in the 50s and 60s, People thought smoking was normal because everyone smoked. They thought it was good for you. They thought you and were exercising your lungs. They thought, um, yeah, it was. Well, actually, you know, they hired people to impersonate physicians and say that kind of thing. But, you know, real physicians, you know, were not like totally on board. But it was, it was a hard lift to yeah. prove that smoking was actually causing not just lung cancer, but, you know, emphysema and heart attacks and, and a whole raft of things, in part because the statistical methodology didn't yet exist. I, I do this kind of work, but ultimately it became very clear that smoking was a, you know, was a public health catastrophe hiding in plain sight. And it's taken 50 years to roll it back. And now we're down to 18% of American smoke. So, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but it's been very, very hard. Just so with shares, hiding in plain right. sight. Well, I think you and I would make the same claim, which is the sad part about what we're doing, and I'm putting sad in air quotes, is that shoes and chairs don't, normal shoes, quote, normal shoes, which by the way, people, you actually, you and I are in the exact same situation this way. People ask me for the proof about what we're doing. I go, no, no, we're not the intervention. The modern athletic shoe is only 50 years old. 99.5% of human history, people wore stuff that looked like zero shoes. We're the control group. That's right. So, but you know, what I say is it's too bad, and I'm not being literal when I say this, it's too bad that shoes or in your case, chair, normal chairs don't kill people. Because if they did, there would be a tobacco-like investigation. But instead, it just become a multi-billion dollar circle of people trying to make money by trying to correct a problem that the product that they bought to begin with caused. And, you know, it's like the fact that there's a, a multi-billion dollar aftermarket for products to make shoes more comfortable says there's a problem with the shoes and people don't want to put two and two together. I, I like, I, I, you may have a variation of this in the footwear world. 
every couple of years, someone has some new form of cushioning or padding, same basic idea. And it's always hailed as like, you know, the next greatest thing. No one ever says, hey, sorry about that crap we were selling up until now. We just proved that. Was the <laughs> Here's the new one. Um, but more like the boy who cried wolf is that in that story, the villagers eventually got smart and didn't show up. But when the shoe companies cry cushioning, people keep showing up. And yeah, it's like Lucy in the football. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, there, there's an analogous thing I'm now just thinking of with chairs. I haven't been paying exquisite attention to this, but enough to know, like, here's some new chair thing. Now we have, my God, I heard a commercial on NPR for some chair company and they were advertising as a benefit that there were something like 32 different adjustment points. <laughs> All I could think was, I don't even want to spend the time to figure out one. Right. And that's really the genius of our chair is there's nothing to adjust except the height. Everything else you adjust in real time on the fly. Just as we have kind of the same thing in world of chairs where, you know, we, we tell people sort of slyly, if lumbar support is the answer, how come 80% of America still has back pain? Right. I say the same thing. They've had 50 years to make these shoes better. Why are 50% of runners and 80% of marathoners still getting injured every year? And prior to 1970, you can't find any medical literature about treating running injuries because they basically weren't happening. You know, it's so interesting that most of the diseases that we face are, as we say in the business, diseases of modernity. You know, you couldn't have these diseases without, you know, the superstructure that, you know, gives us what we call modern life. They're, and, you know, it's, it's taken a while to discover that, you know, the Franken food that people eat and the weirdo chairs that we sit on and the bizarre footwear that everybody thinks is normal all have taken a, a, an incredible uh, toll on what could have been a much more pleasant life. There's a, I met a podiatrist who told me the story of another podiatrist who went to Kenya. I'm going to get some of the details wrong. Um, let's say in the sixties and was studying the Kenyan army. Most people in the army grew up without shoes. And his report after studying the Kenyan army was a podiatrist will go broke in this country. <laughs> and I say that often. I go, if you want to find people who have healthy feet, just go anywhere where they don't have indoor plumbing. And uh, again, a little glib, but trying to make the point that there's a natural thing going on where people don't have the same issues. Um, Irene Davis from Harvard had a line when I was just getting zero shoes started that was very encouraging. She said, if we just got kids wearing your shoes in 20 years, we wouldn't be treating adults for the billions of dollars of problems they currently have. And we have the same idea about chairs, but schools you know, can't afford glitter for their preschoolers' right. art projects. So we came up with a, a design that we give away. That, oh, uh, I love can, that. Oh, so again, you, if for people who aren't watching, describe this thing that I am totally in love with right now. It's uh, four pieces of plywood that are cut with a CNC router. Uh, they fit together with self-locking joints that we invented. And the seat top uh, sits on top of a... We started out using tennis balls, but kids wore them out within a month. Lacrosse so we had to balls. switch to lacrosse. Yeah. We had to switch to lacrosse balls because they can't wear those out. Yeah. And when you look at it from above, it kind of looks like a button. So we call it the button chair. Uh, the double entendre is intended, but on chair. Um, we've got you know hundreds of these in public schools here in Vermont. And um, we have a website, uh, buttonchairs.org where we give away the, the CNC router plan so anybody can make this. You stamp them out with a CNC router like you would Christmas cookies, and then that they just snap together. Awesome. How many people have gotten those? 
there have been a thousand downloads from our buttonchairs.org website. So, you know, I don't know how many, well, we, we get pictures from Taiwan and Singapore and Australia and all over the place. I don't really know how many are out there because, you know, we don't require people to tell us anything. We just give away the design. Yeah. I love it. Man, that is so, so brilliant. So sadly, we're coming up on time, as they say. I don't know who they are, and I wish they would stop saying things <laughs> like that. But regardless, um, is there anything that we left out just to talk about what humans have been doing, what they could be doing, your chair, you, uh, anything that you can think of that we need to talk about? Well, I think we pretty well covered the waterfront. You know, chairs are a problem. We think that we've got a good solution. May not work for everybody, but um, it works for a lot of people. So, you know, one thing that we haven't done during this entire conversation. What's that? Talked about the name of your chair. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, you can tell I'm not a marketing guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, um, we called the chair we sent you the Ariel. We named it after the wife of a medical student who just loved it. So we, we named it after her. And our company is QOR360, like core 360, like your core. All the C words were taken. So we got Q, QOR360.com. I, and I um, I wrote a book about this stuff that you can download for free from our website if, if it's interesting to you. It should be interesting to you. This is super, super. I mean, I'm totally fascinated. The thing that I'm pl literally playing with in my head right now, we have a lot of people in our office who have standing desks, and sometimes they're using higher chairs because they want to switch to not standing, and it's not one of those adjustable things. And so I'm imagining, and I haven't looked, and I should have, if I was a smart awesome, good podcast host instead of a <laughs> lazy guy who just starts conversations with people that he likes. Um, I would have looked to see if you made something to accommodate that, which all it would need would be a platform, an adjustable height platform. Oh, it, you know, it's it's an easy thing to make. We made a couple for people who requested them. But as a former trauma surgeon, the business of making a, a tippy chair and then just cranking it up to some, uh, you know, brain injury height seemed like a bad idea. So, you know, we prefer for people to have their feet on the floor because, yeah. you know, they're less likely to, to and, and you don't need a standing desk. You can have a variable height desk so you can kind of dial yeah. it in. Those things cost money. We're, we're a startup. So. <laughs> yeah, they, they, but really any desk is variable height. You just have to buy the right number of paperback well, books to put under it. You know, actually, it's funny. Most of our standing desks are regular desks with cinder blocks underneath them. We're very classy over here. We don't have any cars <laughs> on cinder blocks in the front, but we do have desks on cinder blocks on the inside. We're not one of those venture back companies where they get nothing but Herman Miller chairs and adjustable height desks. And, you know, everyone's got a monitor that's 48 inches wide and yeah, we're trying to get shoes on people's feet and um, spend as much money as we can on inventory to do that because to monitor, spend, to deal with the growth. And so how's biz been going in short form? So we've shipped about 6,000 chairs in the last couple of years, which you know seems like a pretty good pace for us because we're making them here in Burlington, Vermont. And so, you know, we, our supply chain, you know, we have to kind of keep building up the supply chain to keep up with orders. So yeah. we grossed just over a million dollars last year. So we think we're a real business, oh, nothing great. like you guys, of course, but we're working on it. You know, it's just a matter of, um, well, I like to say that what we've been able to accomplish is uh, due to 90% luck. And the other 10% is also luck. And then there's, <laughs> then there's a separate 100% where 90% of that is working your butt off. And the other 10% is hopefully being smart enough to know how to put out the fires that started overnight, despite nothing having changed since yesterday. So, um, you know, we're doing the best we can.
And then good for you that you're able to make things locally because uh, footwear doesn't work that way. And of course, we, like many other people in the world right now, are dealing with the after effects of all the COVID-related things that um, have created supply chain issues. But blah, 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 mm-hmm. business. Yeah. No, so, the, the supply chain issue is huge for everybody, really, but uh, especially in the footwear world, I think. You know, there's a lot of companies or a lot of industries that have been dramatically affected. Footwear is a big one. And people love to say, well, why don't you just, you know, move somewhere else? I got it doesn't work that way. I mean, we can't just move to America because literally, it's literally not possible to make our products here in the same way it's literally not possible to get a domestically made version of the devices we're using for this conversation. And the industry experts say to move footwear manufacturing back to America would take at least 20 years and possibly $100 billion. And to move out, uh, to move into different parts of the world, it doesn't work that way because the supply chain is all still in China. You know, so if you move to Vietnam or wherever, you still have to get everything from China mostly. So it's very, um, we're all seeing the vulnerable aspect of that right now. And And it's not just footwear, it's also vaccines. Oh, really? That's interesting. You know, I'm going to have to talk to someone about that. My neighbor, we just moved into a new house a few months ago. My neighbor is a big muckety-muck at a company that makes a lot of the vaccines, especially the COVID ones. And I have not talked to him about supply chain things or other vaccines. I'm going to have to have that conversation this weekend. That's fascinating. I had no idea. It's an interconnected world. That's exactly what I was going to say. And people don't like to think that it should be that way. Ultimately, when it works, that's the best way. But when there's a glitch in the system, it affects everybody. And And, everything. And everything. And it's not like you can avoid glitches in the system. Things happen. I've been told. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, Turner, once again, this has been a total, total pleasure. And um, do me a favor, just uh, because it's fun to do this at the very end, remind people again where they can find you and or everything about what we've been talking about. So we have a website, qor360.com. You can download a book about this stuff. I I write blog. There's more stuff there than you care to read. (laughs) Um, And videos. Videos of this stuff. There we go. Videos too. I think you're being um, uh, hyper modest. So um, this has been a treat. Once again, for everyone, please do go check out what we've been talking about. I would love to hear what your experience is and hear, well, what your experience is. That's the bottom line. So let's wrap it up and just remind everyone, if you want to find out more about what we've been doing, uh, what Turner's been doing, you know where to go, qro360.com. If you want to find out what we're doing, go to www.jointhemovementmovement.com. Again, you'll find all the previous episodes, ways you can interact with us. If you have any requests or questions, people you want to recommend that we should be chatting with, or if you want to tell me I've got my head firmly up my butt or anything in between, I'm open to any conversation. Drop me an email, move at jointhemovementmovement.com. Again, if you want to be part of the movement, spreading the word, just subscribe, like, share, leave reviews, et cetera. But most importantly, go out, have fun, and live life feet first.